And I want to tell you when I look at you, this is why I get emotional. I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're a person that is so much more than your race and gender. You're a Christian, you're a mom, you're, you're, you're intellect, you love books. But for me, I'm sorry, I, I, it's hard for me not to look at you and not see my mom. Not to see my, my cousins, one of them who had to come here and sit behind you. She had to, be, she had to have your back. I see my ancestors and yours. Nobody's going to steal the joy of that woman in the street or the calls that I'm getting or the texts. Nobody's going to steal that joy. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. And happy Saturday and welcome to The Deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. It is Saturday, March 26, 2022. Uh, another lovely Saturday uh, here in North Carolina where I am. Uh, before we get started today, I did want to uh, pass on some sad news for folks who watch the program and maybe been watching from the beginning. Um, uh, the very first program when we were trying to experiment with this was uh, a live broadcast on Wednesday nights. Uh, and we were mainly talking about COVID and things around COVID and the first guest um, was a Dr. Warshell Faison, uh, of uh, graduate of North Carolina Central University, distinguished alumni, sat on um, the uh, uh, a lot of the uh, uh, groups at North Carolina Central, a super fan of North Carolina Central sports. Uh, Dr. Warshell Faison passed away last Saturday. We were not here last Saturday partially due to the fact that uh, it was just overwhelming uh, for me because I, I knew Dr. Faison and also Dr. Faison was also a graduate of UNC Medical School and did her residency at Duke University. So she hit all the schools in the triangle and, uh, and she was also a fan of Duke, unfortunately, and UNC. And um, I, I, I'd be remiss to not mention it at the top of this show because uh, our conversations about COVID made us decide to do this program and, uh, and, and there'll be more information about Dr. Faison uh, later on in the program. But I, I did want to start off with that. And, but let's get started with the show. Uh, Val, I guess welcome back to the deal. Thank you. It, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. We got a plate full this morning. I can tell you that. A plate full is not even a half of it. You, you saw in the intro, Val, uh, Cory Booker. Uh, he got emotional about Katanji Brown-Jackson doing her confirmation hearings. There was a lot of uh, bluster. I guess that's, I, I don't know what else to call it from the Republicans. I was going to call it bullshit, but maybe it's too early in the show <laughs> to start cussing, but maybe not. Because uh, it, it was very, well, let, let's start with, with Cory Booker first. Uh, uh, you know, uh, nothing in Cory Booker's assessment there is wrong. Uh, she's a, a qualified candidate. Uh, and She's going to inspire a lot of people. So let's start there. Let's start on a positive, Val. Talk to me about what Cory Booker had to say about Katanji Brown-Jackson and then your assessment of how she did uh, in the hearings. Well, starting with the last question first, Ed, I, I 
think that she handled herself as she is handling herself extremely well uh, because you have people who uh, have set out from the beginning to uh, make her life miserable as she is being deposed there as, as a candidate to be on the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And uh, with all of that going on, she still manages to maintain her composure. She still maintains her position about the facts and the law that comes out in everything she says. They try to drag her into giving her personal opinion about issues. And she constantly rises above that and say, that's not what a jurist does. A good jurist, what we do is we look at the facts and we apply the law. So my opinion on this matter is irrelevant and it doesn't matter and it never has. And they couldn't stand that because she was right. They lost, they tried to drag her into some emotional, personal type of discussion and conversation. They were unable to do that. And she, because of that, she won the day and she's still winning. I think she's gonna get uh, confirmation. My prediction is that there will be a couple of Republicans even that vote for her uh, affirmative confirmation and that uh, she'll go on to become a Stella jurist. Uh, you won't find out anytime soon how good she is. And some of us won't be around when she reaches her high watermark, but she's a young lady comparatively speaking, and she's gonna have many years and hopefully many decades on the court. And as those years roll around, when we move from a six to three majority to a five to four on one side or the other, or some rules change about the number of people on the Supreme Court, I think that's when you really see people like uh, Judge Jackson rise and become real heroes in our judicial process. Well, let's talk about the mechanics of these hearings, Val. Um, I'm often struck with uh, congressional hearings. I've, I've sat in congressional hearing rooms before and watched these hearings. Uh, and, but, but these nomination hearings are on a whole different level. It gives people opportunity to be a jackass. Uh, I want to show you uh, one jackass in particular. Uh, his name is Lindsey Graham. And then I want to talk to you about his behavior this that week. The number of images should not be considered as a sentence enhancement. Senator, with respect to the computer, one of the most effective deterrents is one that I imposed in every case and that judges across the country impose in every case, which is substantial, substantial supervision. Any You're, of these wait, defendants. Wait, wait a minute, Judge. You think it is a bigger deterrent to take somebody who's on a computer looking at sexual images of children in the most disgusting way is to supervise their computer habits versus putting them in jail? No, Senator, I didn't say versus. That's exactly what you said. I think the best way to deter people from getting on a computer and viewing thousands and hundreds and over time maybe millions, the population as a whole, of children being exploited and abused every time somebody clicks on is to put their ass in jail 
not supervise their computer usage. Serve a system that can keep terrorists off the battlefield. They deserve a system that understands the difference between being at war and a crime. Do you consider 9-11, you said, a terrible, tragic event? Would you consider it an act of war? Yes, Senator. Okay, I would too. I think it was an act of war by al-Qaeda and associated groups against the people of the United States. So as you rightfully are proud of your service as a public defender and you represented Gitmo detainees, which is part of our system, I want you to understand and the nation to understand what's been happening at Gitmo. What's the recidivism? Uh, uh, Lindsey Graham is all indignant. <laughs> <laughs> and being uh, being Lindsey Graham, I saw a whole bunch of memes with Lindsey Graham dressed as an old lady, you know, hollering at people this week and stuff like that. Um, I, I, I want to get to the substance of, you know, what he was claiming to say. Now, he went on a bit a little bit different from some of his other colleagues, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. He tried to talk about Guantanamo Bay and terrorist and yada, 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 right? As if Katanji Brown-Jackson was trying to get uh, detainees released to be out in America to kill Americans, when in fact, she was a public defender. And part of the way this system works is that we have a court system where you have to prove something. Either you just don't bring somebody in and then hang them the next day. And in her role as a public defender, and she answered it often uh, with uh, a number of people on the panel, but Lindsay in particular, that she was doing her job. You know, she's tasked with something and and she's an attorney. Um, We have attorneys in our family. Uh, We know attorneys and we know what attorneys do. They don't always represent uh, people that they want to represent. Uh, especially in the public defender role. Talk to me a little bit about uh, Lindsey Graham and his behavior, but also talk about the fact that he he knows good and damn well that she was acting in a public defender role. Yeah, well, all of these Republican uh, players uh, in this process, Ed, uh, they're playing a role. They know that they are being looked at by the GOP and by the Trumpers, by the MAGA people to determine, well, who was tough on Judge Jackson? Who let her get away? Who brought heat to her? Uh, Did we get any talking points out of this that we can use in some campaigns going forward against some of our other Democratic people? Uh, how, How many headlines did we create? Who's talking about some of these things? And and even asking tough questions of some of Jackson's supporters now that we brought things up like Guantanamo Bay and a a lot of emails and stuff. And that was their role. And uh, to an extent, they've been successful at that. They they know they can't stop this. Uh, They know she's a stellar uh, person, jurors. They know all of that. They are using this opportunity to score political points for the GOP, for conservatives, for MAGA people. They want to show when they get up there that, hey, I can out MAGA my previous Republican person 
that talked about how bad she was in making decisions about drug people. I'm gonna bring up Guantanamo Bay. And it doesn't matter to a hill of beans. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and the worst thing I think we can do as Jackson supporters is to get on that bandwagon and, and pretend that they are making salient arguments and we have to take them one by one and refute them. That's when we lose. That's exactly when we lose, when we take the bait, and that's all it is, is bait, of trying to answer stupid questions by stupid people when the real point is not being discussed. That is, they're trying to make points, political points for conservatives against Democratic candidates moving forward. And, and I think Cory Booker got close to saying that, but, but he didn't. I don't know why most Democrats don't say that. I don't know why they don't call Republicans to task and say, why don't you stop trying to make MAGA points and use this process to talk about the uh, appointment of uh, Judge Brown at, uh, to the courts? You're wasting Americans' time. We're not going to entertain this kind of mess, this kind of craziness. And uh, you find too many, in my opinion, Ed, too many Democratic senators who tried to play the game fair as though the Republicans were playing it fair. And, you know, and they look so out of touch, so out of place, like, you're in 1975, Senator why don't you please come up to the 21st century? These guys are not playing fair by the rules and you are, and you look like you are just out of place. Yeah, I wish it, I could have told some of them that. Well, yeah, I, I might've got drug out of the hearing room because I would have been like, you, you're a lying ass liar, uh, yeah, Lindsey right. Graham or whoever. I want to remind you guys that you're watching the deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark, that's Val Atkinson. We're talking about the hearings this week for Judge uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, uh, you know, one of the things that, again, it, there's a lot of optics in these things. And, and you see family members sitting behind the judge. Uh, you, you see other supporters of the, the judge there. And, and then uh, her daughter was in the audience and a lot was made of, you know, how her daughter looked proud of her mom. Right. But one of the things that kept coming up in uh, was obviously about the child porn stuff. We saw Lindsey Graham talk about that. Uh, it, but uh, your uh, our other buddy, Ted Cruz, and this is the last thing I'm going to say about these people on the right. And you're absolutely right about them trying to score political points. Ted Cruz uh, tried to bring in a book called Anti-Racist Baby. Let's look at that clip and then we'll finish this up. They include a book called Anti-Racist Baby uh, by I Ibram Kendi. And there are portions of this book that, that, that I find really quite remarkable. One portion of the book says babies are taught to be racist or anti-racist. There is no neutrality. Another portion of the book they recommend to babies confess when being racist. Now, this is a book that is taught at George. Okay, well, this is a $8 book you can buy on Amazon. And it basically says, don't teach your babies to be racist because uh, you are, as parents, have influence over your children. 
and, and Ted Cruz basically tried to mock that and try to make it some big test about critical race theory, I suppose, right? Uh, and and then you know I, I I get I get the feeling that uh, Ted Cruz uh, is you know uh, he, he may be the most odious person ever to be in the Senate, uh, and that's hard to you know, match with people like Strom Thurmond and Eastling and Eastland and people like that having been in the Senate. But Ted Cruz is trying to be the most odious person ever in the Senate. He's so cynical. It's sad. One of the things about Ted Cruz, Val, is that he was he was tweeting every time he tried to score one of those points. And and I tweeted back to him. I'm watching the hearing and you could see him looking at his Twitter on his phone. And I tweeted back to him doing one of his things, telling him he was the most odious person ever in the history of the Senate. I guess the last word on this, Val. Uh she gets onto the court. Is it gonna is it 52, 48, or what what's your prediction on on this? Because I think it's a done deal and they tried to score points, but I don't think they scored what they thought they were going to score from the Republican side. Well, what's the final vote on this? I think you call it Ed hit the nail on the head. I'm calling it 52 to 48. Uh, all Democrats, all 50, will vote affirmatively. And I figure a couple of Republicans, and I can't say right now who they may be, but I figure two will come over to the other side and make it 52 to 48. I don't think we have to worry about our normal uh, nemesis in cases like this with the Senate, uh, Christian Cinema, and Joe Manchin because they know better than to wade into this water. They can't come up with an excuse why they're doing this. And they would be, it would be totally obvious that they are flies in the ointment, that they are not real Democrats, that they are anti-democratic party. So they're gonna, you know, they're gonna go ahead and stay home and vote with the Democrats on this one. And they'll come back to fight us on other issues another day. So uh, 52 to 48 is my call. Okay, so let's stay on the court for a second. Um, I know you were probably panicked early this week when you realized that Clarence Thomas was in the hospital. Let's look at the clip if we're talking about it. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has been discharged from the hospital after nearly a week. Justice Thomas was hospitalized last Friday after experiencing flu-like symptoms. According to the court, he was treated for an infection with intravenous antibiotics. Initially, he was expected to be released from the hospital earlier this week. The court says Justice Thomas did not have COVID. We'll have more on the comments. You know, Val, I, I don't wish anybody ill. And, and let's get that straight. Um, I'm glad Clarence Thomas seems to be on demand. He was in the hospital for some flu-like symptoms. They're denying that it was COVID related. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, doesn't matter. He was there in the hospital. Uh, Clarence Thomas has been sturdy on the right as a vote. He, there's no tipping his hand that he may even go the other way on any case. You know where he's gonna be uh, in, on the court. Uh, Talk to me real quick about uh, Clarence Thomas before we get into some other news about Clarence Thomas and his wife. Uh, but talk to me about Clarence Thomas and his impact on the court 
And just how long he's been there. I don't know if people realize how long Clarence Thomas has been on the court and how cynical it was to put Clarence Thomas on the court back at the time when George Bush dominated him, knowing full well that he was not a real replacement, you know, uh, for a third good Marshall. Right. Uh, Clarence Thomas, as you said, uh, was nominated by President George H.W. Bush. Uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, it was a mess of a hearing uh, simply because there was an allegation by Anita, Baker, Anita Hill that uh, uh, Clarence Thomas had sexually harassed her. Uh, and that, had, that type of allegation had never come up uh, during a hearing in a Supreme Court case uh, appointment before and so this was big. It was the first and biggest uh, news item uh, in every newspaper, uh, radio station, television station that you can find because the internet was nowhere near it is where it is now. So all of those three carriers of uh, news had the Clarence Thomas, uh, Anita Hill saga as this number one lead story. Uh, and it turned political real quick because Republicans were trying to make some hay by nominating a right, a, a person of color to replace Thurgood Marshall, but having them to be politically aligned with the right, politically aligned with the GOP. So on voting issues, they they felt that they would have a win-win situation. Democrats saw through this, what they were trying to do, that this was a wolf in sheep's clothing, Clarence Thomas. And you might as well have had Strom Thurmond or George Wallace to be on the bench because Clarence Thomas was definitely not going to vote anywhere near the way Thurgood Marshall did. And he was aligned more closely with a right-wing uh, segregationist and those kind of people, but he would happen to be African-American. He was even against uh, affirmative action, which he used to gain the status that he had being a graduate of Yale Law School. Without affirmative action, he would have never gotten into Yale Law School. So we had a little saying that we say it's like, using a ladder to pull yourself up to the top of the tree. And then you pull the ladder up so nobody else can use it to come up there with you. That's what, that's what Prince Thomas did. He, he got what he needed and wanted through affirmative action. Then he wanted to say affirmative action was no good and should not be. Uh, so that's why the right wanted him and supported him. The reason Clarence Thomas was such a, has been such a right-wing sycophant all of these years is simply because he felt that the black community should have supported him during his nomination uh, proceedings and that the black community should have been proud to have an African-American on the court, regardless of his political suasions or leanings or what the Republicans were trying to do with that. And because the black community, generally speaking, did not support Clarence Thomas. 
he made a vow almost that he was going to do whatever he could for the rest of his breathing life to be against anybody who said they represented Black issues or Black people or anything involving the civil rights movement. And he has been very successful at that. You name the subject, I can tell you Prince Thomas's vote before he casts it. I don't care what it is. I can yeah. tell you how he's going to vote every time. Every and time. As far right as he can get. Yeah, he, tr- he, he tries to get to the right of Satan most of the time. Hey, Val, look, it looks like we need to take a break. And when we come back, what I want to do is finish up on Clarence Thomas. Because I want to talk about his wife, Virginia. Um, uh, so stay right there. We'll be right back after this message. <laughs> Two to Joe Biden's visit. He's already met some of the U.S. forces based here near Poland's border with Ukraine. And talks with Poland's president are bound to canvas plans to bolster NATO's defences, not just in Poland, but other countries that border Ukraine or Russia. For now, these refugees, of course, are safe in Poland, but many here strongly fear the war will spill over into Poland and other parts of Europe, perhaps even forcing them to flee further west. U.S. media reports on Thursday said that the wife of conservative U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas pushed the Trump White House to overturn the 2020 election. The Washington Post and CBS News both reported that Virginia Thomas urged the White House chief of staff under Trump, Mark Meadows, to overturn the election results and preserve Trump's presidency. The report said that Thomas, a conservative activist and attorney, exchanged text messages with Meadows in which she advised him to, quote, save us from the left taking America down. Well, she's an activist and she's she's entitled to that. She has the First Amendment rights. But here she is playing the role of campaign manager and political consultant for the White House, coming in and talking about things that... uh, I mean, there is a self-righteous tone. I, um, we're on the moral high road. I mean, Meadows himself says this is a fight of good versus evil. And he invokes the name of Jesus, you know, oh King of Kings. Yes. You know, yes. to, 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 to help in this, this um, I guess you have to call it a crusade that they were on. Um, I, so tell Welcome me back to our the, second segment of The Deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. It is Saturday, March 26, 2022. Uh, we were talking about the Supreme Court when we left. And um, 
Val's uh, running buddy, Clarence Thomas. Um, his favorite justice of all time. I think Val has a poster of him up in in, in his office there somewhere. <laughs> Not. Um, Clarence Thomas, Val, uh, coming back in from the break, we saw a clip about his lovely wife, Virginia Thomas. Uh, Virginia Thomas, um, if people don't know, is an operative in the Republican Party and has been, even at the time she met Clarence. Uh, from the time she met Clarence, she was working uh, for the Republican Party. She's been a staunch supporter. She's worked on campaigns. She's done all kinds of stuff. And look, Val, it's your First Amendment right to say what you want to. I say what I want to. She just happens to be married to a man who's on the Supreme Court. What's problematic to me is um, I'm sure, you, you know, you talk to your spouse about stuff and, you know, about your job and what you did during the day. And Clarence just happens to be like uh, deciding court cases. <laughs> and, and, uh, and Virginia Thomas also believes because she was a part of a right wing Christian movement uh, that uh, believes that America is um, somehow uh, endowed by God to be in the position that it's in. And her husband believes the same thing. So let's get to brass tacks here. Uh, apparently, Virginia Thomas was texting Mark Meadows about the January the 6th incident and even encouraged Mark Meadows to continue on with the president to try to steal the election from Joe Biden, and then her husband, the Supreme Court Justice, has to decide whether or not documents related to 1-6 get re released to the 1-6 committee. That's a lot to say, but a long way around to where I want to get to is, is there a problem with Virginia Thomas and her relationship to the Trump administration and the fact that she's married to one of the Supreme Court justices of the United States. I don't know if there is a legal prohibition to that type of relationship and what she's doing or what she has done. But even if there is not, I think there should be. Uh, there is just a little bit too close uh, in, in the kitchen to not affect the recipe and menu there so we don't we don't want that so again i don't know if there's a prohibition on that but if it's not it should be there's no question ed that uh, these right-wingers are going to take every opportunity to do what they do you know whether it's hanging pictures and photos and that kind of thing or even having First Amendment rights to even speak speak about. It. But let me digress just for a second here, if I will, if you will. Allow me to do something I don't do very often yet. I'm gonna tell a joke, but it makes my point. You accuse me of, of uh, having Clarence Thomas's photo in my house or hanging in my room someplace. And it reminded me of some a joke that Abraham Lincoln told when he was talking to some people 
that was, was there from England to visit the White House. And he was telling about this guy who went to uh, King George's uh, mansion and was sitting around and he had to go to the privy. And so when he went to the privy, he came out and the guy asked him, says, what do you think about the pictures hanging in there? Did you see George Washington's photo in the water closet there? So the guy says, yes. Yeah. said, well, what do you think about it? He says, I don't think anything. He said, you mean to tell me that it's okay to have George Washington likeness in the water closet in the bathroom? He said, yeah, I think it's a good idea. And the reason I think it's a good idea, everybody knows that uh, nothing will make an Englishman shit quicker than the sight of George Washington. So it's a great place to have a picture. <laughs> so that's one of the things that if I had Clarence Thomas's photo, it would be in my water closet, in my privy. <laughs> that's where it would be. Well, there you go. <laughs> having said having said all of that, uh, we really need to take a look at the relationship between the people who we've been we've given the responsibility to make our laws and uh, then enforce those laws, and other people who are engaged in uh, private citizen uh, activities. Uh, whether they be partisan or nonpartisan, we've got to look at those and determine that should there be some lines drawn that we don't allow our elected officials and appointed officials and other people to cross. Is we've got to look at that very very closely. Yeah, indeed we do. You know, you know, we spent a lot um, talking about the court today because it's extremely important and. Um, I guess I'll ask you a question that just came to mind as we were talking that you were talking about, uh, you know, influence on the court and, and, you know, rules around the court. The reality is, is that there's not a whole lot written in the rules, in the Constitution, is it? I mean, we've talked about different amendments on here. We've had our legal analyst, uh, Irv, join on here to talk about different aspects of stuff like uh, filibuster, gerrymandering, all kind of different stuff where it's not really clear where they didn't write about everything in the Constitution because it wasn't possible. There's no computers or anything back then when they write. So the thing about the court to me that's odd is that there aren't a lot of rules, is it, Val? There are not a lot of rules, and, and some constitutionalists say that it was intended to be that way, the framers of the constitution intended to be vague so that the, the country could grow. And lawmakers uh, in, in, in times not present yet could make decisions about the law and the process that was germane to the way life in the country is at that particular time as opposed to being locked into the past forever, that those types of decisions that uh, people were making in 1787 are no longer relevant uh, to the way life is now. So the constitution was written that way. And for that, getting back to why we are spending so much time on the courts this morning, is that the court 
is the final arbiter. The Supreme Court of the United States is supposed, we're supposed to have three co-equal branches of government and there's supposed to be oversight and checks and balances. But the way things work, the Supreme Court itself is the final arbiter for everything that goes on. And I think more attention needs to be given to that. That's why I think we should have term limits on the court. I think uh, the number of people on the court should be raised. I think every president should have an opportunity to make appointments to the courts. And if you have term limits and increase the numbers, there will be people coming off and going on all the time. And uh, you won't have uh, uh, concerns about manipulating the courts uh, in, for political purposes and political gains. It should not be. Uh, the court, if it's going to be the final arbiter, it must be fair. And it must be without politicization. And it's not that way now. Everybody talks about the 6-3 court, and they, we know what they're talking about. Six conservatives and three progressives on the court. I mean, they run everything. You, to hear a case, the Supreme Court needs to have four justices to agree to hear that case. That meant something when you have a five to four court. But when you have six to three, that means the six judge conservatives can hear anything they want or refuse to hear anything they don't want to hear. Uh, so a lot of cases get decided just based on the acceptance or refusal to hear the case. And that's done without any voting at all, per se. Uh, so we need to take a look at the courts here. I, I think you made a, a wise decision to spend a little bit of time on that this morning. We need to take a look at the court, uh, the third branch of government, to see if there needs to be any adjustments or changes to it so that it can help the other two branches become more effective in administering this thing called fairness in our republic. We've got to take a look at the courts. Yeah, yeah, because uh, fairness is uh, not necessarily what's going to happen when you when you can decide even what cases you want to hear. I think there's going to be stacked towards cases that will end up uh, taking away rights like abortion rights or taking away uh, uh, some of the things we've become accustomed to, like affirmative action, those kind of things. Uh, you know, the last piece of this, Val, is, you know, I mentioned that uh, Virginia Thomas was texting somebody and the somebody she was texting was Mark Meadows, uh, who had been a congressman representing North Carolina. Let's look at some video and let's talk about Mark Meadows and his, his wife. Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff for Donald Trump, one of many chiefs of staff for Donald Trump. Very well, committed voter fraud by registering to vote from a from a 14 by 62 foot trailer in North Carolina the chief the white house chief of staff indicated on a form that he was living in a 14 foot by 62 foot 
mobile home. When he resigned the seat to become President Donald Trump's chief of staff. Earlier that month, he sold his 2,200-square-foot home in Sapphire. He and his wife Debbie also had a condo in Virginia near Washington, D.C. So they own multiple homes. He sold the home in North Carolina. Keep that in mind. He sold the home in North Carolina, leaving him not a resident of the state of North Carolina. But as so, Val, uh, Mark Meadows uh, is in a, should be in a lot of trouble. And I haven't heard a lot of people talk about this, but Mark Meadows has some funky registration going on in North Carolina for voting. And so does his wife. Apparently, Mr. Meadows sold his house in North Carolina when he went to work for one Donald Trump as the chief of staff and didn't have another residence in North Carolina. But on his applications, he's had multiple addresses on them for voting. And one of those addresses happens to be a trailer <laughs> on somebody else's land in a trailer he does not own. What would have happened if Val Atkinson had gone to D.C. to work for Barack Obama and had a questionable voter registration uh, in a county that had Republicans in charge of the uh, Board of Elections, Val? Speculate for me there. <laughs> yeah, first of all, they would have caught it in time. They would have pulled that and the vote wouldn't have counted. Secondly, I would have been under immediate investigation. I would have been charged. I would have been, uh, if possible, uh, arrested, incarcerated, based on whatever the law provides for remedy for such a, a, a crime. I would have received the maximum for that me along with the other 330 some odd million Americans. But it seems as though if you are a politician, especially if you are a conservative politician, and I want every democratic politician to hear what I'm saying right now. It appears to us non-voting uh, politicians that Democrats are afraid of Republicans Democrats put Republicans above the law. They refuse to hold them accountable. They want Republicans to come in and get the key, unlock the cell door, get in the jail, lock the door behind them, and throw the keys back out under the door. Democrats don't want to be the jailer. They want to provide the facts and the data, and everybody said it's, it's overwhelming and you should resign or go and lock yourself up in the jail. Well, if that's the case, I don't need to be paying you money as the jailer, Democrats. You know, you want somebody else to do your job. You go do your job, arrest this guy, put him in jail. Merrick Garland, I'm talking to you. Arrest this guy, put him in jail, and let the uh, law take its uh, proper route. Yeah. Well, we'll see if that any of that happens. I suspect that there will be uh, some excuses going on and some machinations over trying not to uh, bring justice in this case. Hey, Val, I hear some music. That means we need to take our final break. And when we come back, 
Uh, I want to switch gears and go overseas. I want to talk about Ukraine a little bit. I want to talk about Brittany Griner, uh, who's in jail in Russia. And I want to talk about Kyrie Irving. Uh, so stay right there. We'll be right back after this message. In America, millions of families are facing hunger. Many are forced to choose between food and other necessities. I'm stuck between paying for medications or paying for food. John from Maine. After rent and power, I can get groceries. It's sad to say food comes last. Anna from Texas. The Feeding America network of food banks helps provide over six billion meals to people in need each year. I thought pantries were for less fortunate people, but anybody could be less fortunate in a day or even a second. Claire from Virginia. Now I can provide food for my family again. It's not a handout, it's a hand up. Liam from Ohio. No one should have to worry where their next meal will come from. Together, we can end hunger. Learn more at feedingamerica.org. And welcome back to our final segment of The Deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. That's Sal. Thank you. And we're just having a, our little Saturday chit-chat, like we often do. Uh, Dr. Nicole McFarland's off doing something this week. She's not here. Um, again, um, uh, we plan on having other guests in here uh, as the year goes by. And, um, you know, sometimes it's just hard to produce a show. But people don't know this, Val. But, you know, we we, uh, we get up early on Saturday morning uh, and try to make this as timely and topical as possible. Uh, we're downloading video and talking about topics up to the moment that we come on the air. Um, and, uh, and we put a lot of effort in that. Uh, and I say that to say that uh, if you uh, uh, believe in this program, uh, let other people know. Uh, this is a way to get some news that you probably don't get from other spaces. Uh, we can say things in a little bit more freer manner. Val can tell Abraham Lincoln jokes. Uh, without being censored, that kind of thing. And, um, and and you hear a variety of voices and opinions on here. We've had some great guests over the over the couple of years that we've been on. And as I mentioned uh, coming on today, Val, um, we lost uh, our first guest, um, Dr. Warshell Faison uh, from uh, uh, Duplin County, North Carolina, great doctor, uh, advocate for elderly care and so on and so forth. So uh, this is a good place to come to get information is my point. So let, let's wrap this up, Val. You know, we ended uh, talking about uh, Mark Meadows and, and, and sort of the, uh, all the shady stuff that was going on in the Trump administration. But there's, a, there's the administration that's in now, the Biden administration, uh, they have a problem. And the problem happens to be a guy sitting in Moscow uh, 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 named uh, 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 Putin. And Putin um, has decided <clears throat> to invade his neighbors uh, multiple times over the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, and, and this particular incursion into Ukraine is problematic. I want to show some video. This is as new as you can get. This is like literally five minutes before we came on. And this is from um, Ukraine. The burnt-out remains of a Russian attack. On the road out of Kyiv, tank after tank obliterated. Grad missiles by the highway 
an unexploded mortar shell and pockmarks where others hid. We've been brought to the front line by a Ukrainian army fresh from a battlefield victory. You want the world to see what the Russians are doing here, don't you? Not just what they did, this staff lieutenant says, but what they are still doing, particularly to civilians. The tanks took up positions to fire on a village across the river. Homes destroyed, two people dead, three injured. The battle here was fierce. The approaching Russian tanks and the Ukrainian soldiers mainly using shoulder-mounted missiles to fight back. The Ukrainians say they didn't lose any men here, but around 60 Russian soldiers were killed. Spilling out from the BMP. So, Val, um, what they're showing here is uh, the Russians aren't doing as well as they thought they were going to do. I think they thought they were going to roll into Ukraine. It'll be over in a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, they would give up uh, or at least make their concessions that Russia wanted and this would be over. But as you saw in the clip, uh, they showed a tank there that, or, 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 or a personnel vehicle that was completely destroyed, multiple Russians killed, so on and so forth. Give me your assessment of how the war is going for Russia at this point. Not going well at all. Um, there have been several general officers that have been captured or killed. Um, there have been several general officers and other high-ranking officials that have been relieved of command, relieved of their duties. Uh, and Putin, needless to say, is thoroughly dissatisfied with the way things are going. You know, it's as though lessons have not been learned. It, if we go back to Afghanistan war, the first one, when the Russians were there, uh, we helped the Afghans uh, defeat the Russians by giving them Stinger missiles to shoot down the helicopters. And because of the mountainous terrain that we find in Afghanistan, if you don't have a helicopter, you just can't get around. So that was what happened in the 90s to uh, allow us to help the Afghans defeat the Soviets. It's as though they didn't learn anything from that uh, because it's still happening now. Shoulder mounted uh, surface to air missiles are being used to shoot down helicopters now in Ukraine as opposed to Afghanistan, but the victim is the same. Uh, Russian pilots and other people in uh, staff and crew in helicopters. Uh, the same thing surface to surface also, mounted weapons are being used to shoot tanks and armored personnel carriers. Uh, so it's not going well at all. They had a, a 40 mile supply logistical convoy that they could move and uh, people were coming in and blowing up uh, fuel tankers and that kind of thing. And it just made it horrible. <laughs> and uh, it showed the, ineptness and just the total lack of professionalism of uh, Russia's uh, fighting force. And uh, I know they've got to really be shaking their heads about this, but they are losing this one. The only thing they got going for it is the step one, I call it, fighting force. They could wipe Ukraine off of the map tomorrow within the hour if they chose to do so. But that would have to be with nuclear weapons, and that would be World War III, and nobody wins. But fighting a conventional war 
the, the Russians really, really have been had their heads handed to them. It's not good uh, to be experiencing it things in this nature. Yeah, I'm sure uh, every morning in the Kremlin, everybody's worried about how Putin's disposition is going to be for the rest of the day once he gets reports from Ukraine about the casualties. I mean, I was seeing numbers in the order of 15,000 Russians already killed. We we only lost 2,000 people in Afghanistan over 20 years. Uh, I think it was some like 2,800 people. They've lost 15,000 in, in, you know, 30 days, uh, which is extraordinary number. Um, it, so, Val, there's always knock on effects of these things. And, and one of them is uh, sometimes other people get caught up into the fray. And one person has gotten caught up is Brittany Griner. Let's look at a clip and then we'll talk about that. Is a, a perfect storm that is just so difficult for this situation, obviously, and for Brittany Griner personally. I mean, she's six foot nine. She's in a just the the optics and the physical side of this in a in a small cell. The bed is too small. Uh, she's used to, of course, a life of freedom as all Americans are, and certainly a life uh, of her dreams as a star athlete playing in the U.S. and in Russia. All of that came crashing down on February 17th. So the war clearly has had an impact, as Deborah said in her report. I, I think the, what we're seeing stateside, Diane, is a low-key approach. Deborah just mentioned the two options. Um, most of her friends and, and family, the people I've talked to, my sources in the sports world have said everyone wants to just be quiet, not do anything to enrage anyone over in Russia, like say Vladimir Putin, if he's paying attention to this at all, and uh, and also just try to tamp down any um, extra uh, areas of concern, hoping that that quiet approach, uh, that that silent treatment, might be a better approach moving forward to keep things quiet. Let's so Val, Brittany Griner is a WNBA player uh, because the WNBA is not the NBA. They don't make a you know millions of dollars. They make good money, but they don't make millions of dollars. So a lot of those players go to Russia to play uh, in the offseason or Argentina, wherever you know there's women's basketball leagues, Japan, that kind of thing. Brittany Griner had had decided that she was going to play in Russia and maybe stay a day or two too long. I'm not going to blame her for her situation, but she's sitting in a jail in Russia at this point, Val. And it doesn't look like anytime soon she's going to be getting out. But we haven't heard a lot about it. And one of the things that they speculate in the clip that we showed is that they don't want to antagonize Putin and maybe get more harsh treatment for Brittany Griner. What, what is your assessment of how that story has been covered here? And, and is there anything that you think is probably going on behind the scenes to try to get her out? Well, first of all, the approach that the American media has taken and the global Western media I might add is they want to show the suffering uh, of the Ukrainian people uh, to really uh, do some tear jerking, as it were, uh, and, and make the rest of the world see how horrible this is. Uh, Putin is a terrible guy. And we should all get on the side of the Ukrainians and ain't this a terrible thing. That's the position the media has taken. So they don't want to get off of that right now. Uh, the Brittany uh, Griner case is a distraction from that approach. 
And as you said earlier, and as was said in the piece, uh, we don't want to, you know, give Putin any more reasons to do any crazy stuff, no more than he's already doing. Uh, so the attention hasn't been given to Brittany. The other side of that is, if in fact the allegations are true, then we don't want to be seen, we in the United States don't want to be seen as disrespecting other countries' laws. Although marijuana is legal in many, many uh, states and locales here in the United States, uh, we are bound to respect the laws of other countries just as we expect foreigners to come here and respect our laws. Uh, so uh, because, because of that, we can't give a lot of attention to what's going on with Brittany. Uh, we hope that she's been treated well. All indications indicate that she is. Uh, she hasn't gone to trial yet. I personally look to see a deal being made for her. I don't expect her to be there long-term. Uh, what long-term is, I don't know yet, but I expect to see her released uh, in a short period of time, months, not years. Yeah, yeah, I, I've been thinking the same thing too, Val. I mean, it, she's actually really popular in Russia too, so it, it, it would be counterproductive for them. I know at some point Russia is going to want to come back onto the world stage and have players come and play in their leagues and, and they're going to want to be in uh, international competition, those kind of things. So if they treat her extremely harsh, I don't, I don't see how there's an upside for them. You know, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. But well, we wish her well. One thing about Brittany Grinder, I had an opportunity to meet her uh, in an airport lounge uh, probably about four or five years ago, and she's extremely tall. Uh, it, it was, it was just the, the the whole the whole team walks into the lounge, Val, and and I, I'm just I look like a midget, you know, compared to these ladies, and uh, it, it's extraordinary. Uh, they have extraordinary basketball skill too. Uh, and not on, not only are they tall, but anyway, um, one other basketball story before we get out of here today. We've talked about our buddy Kyrie Irving, another Dookie. Uh, but uh, let's 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 look at this clip, and then we'll talk about Mr. Irving. I don't understand it all. I mean, can, is it every it's a few people in our arena that's unvaxxed, right? Like they lifted all of that in our arena, right? So what's the, I don't get it. It's a second mandate that says he can come in, but can't play. Yeah, I don't get it. It just feels like at this point now, somebody's trying to make a statement or a point um, to flex their authority. Um, but, you know, everybody out here is looking for attention. And that's what I feel like the, the mayor wants right now, some attention, you know. Um, but he'll figure it out soon. He better. Um, but it just didn't make any sense, like, is unvaxxed people in this building already. We got a guy who uh, can come into the building. I guess, are they fearing our safety? With, like, I don't get it. So, yeah, we're all confused. Pretty much everybody in the world is confused at this point. Early on in the season, you know, people didn't understand what was going on. But now it just looks stupid. So hopefully, Eric, you, you got to figure this out. <laughs> okay, Val, so that was last weekend. Kyrie's teammate, Kevin Durant, was making a lot of hay out of the fact that there was still this vaccine mandate to be able to play in Madison Square Garden. 
that's been lifted. But let's let's backtrack a little bit. Uh, I I personally didn't think Kevin Durant should have stepped into criticizing the mayor over the policy because the mayor is not the only person who makes that policy about who should be vaccinated. Number two is Kyrie could have ended all of this by being vaccinated or or just sitting the season out. I mean, there, there was a rule about vaccination and for good reason, because a lot of damn people in New York died at the beginning of COVID. There's no two ways around it. Um, talk to me about athletes and, and what I see sometimes is their self-importance where Kyrie made this all about him and Durant stepped into this conversation about public health policy and so on and so forth. Uh, was that too much? And, and now that Kyrie can play, uh, how far could they go if they can win some of these last few games and get into the playoffs? Well, I, I think I'd like to start by saying it would behoove people like Kevin Durant to like stay in your lane. Uh, this is something that Judge Jackson has repeatedly said in her confirmation hearing. I stay in my lane, but KD needs to listen to some of that. He's a great ball player. He's not a politician, although he's an American citizen. He has First Amendment rights. He can say what he wants, but you know, stay in your lane on certain things. And uh, I think it'll be a lot better. I'm, I'm concerned about him taking the adversarial role against the mayor, as you mentioned, Ed. I don't think that was necessary. Uh, I am glad that, that there's an opportunity to uh, have the policy to look like it's more fair than it was in the past. I disagree that my fellow Dukey, Kyrie Irving, should have uh, gone as long as he did and taken the route that he did. But it wasn't surprising to me. I've said to you and on this show before, when I first discovered that Kyrie Irving was a card-carrying member of the Flat Earth Society, nothing else he said could surprise me. So it, it, didn't, it didn't surprise me at all when he came out and says he wasn't taking no uh, vaccination and they don't work or whatever he said. You know, Flat Earthers can say anything they want and it, and it all makes sense to somebody out there. But seriously speaking, uh, I'm glad that it's over. And to answer your last question, I think it may have some impact, albeit minimal, on how things work out in terms of who makes the playoffs and uh, what teams make the playoffs and how far they go. But I don't think it would be a discerning factor. I don't think the return of Kyrie Irving will tip the uh, Brooklyn Nets up to the point that they are going to win the NBA championship or something of that nature. Yeah. Uh, they'll be better than what they would have been without Kyrie, but they're not going anywhere with just Kyrie and KD. KD is a great ball player, in my opinion. He's probably the best right now. But one guy, and Duke is showing everybody this, one guy has a hard time beating five. Yeah. That's Even true. You guys have a hard time beating five. So. Well, you know what, Val? The, yeah, yeah. They end up on basketball. You know, the March Madness is going on. I, I'm tired this morning because uh, I stayed up and watched uh, the Tar Heels squeak one out with UCLA. 
and then I watched Miami uh, win. And uh, I stayed up and watched this team from Durham the night before uh, win. Uh, and uh, I saw Coach K <laughs> express emotions that I don't normally see him. And he was pumping his fist and and jumping up and doing all kind of stuff. You know, I, I guess you know he, he realizing this every game could be his very last game. That's right. He's got uh, one more. I'm sure it's very emotional for him. Okay, so it, it's Saturday morning, Val. So no games have been played for Saturday or or Sunday in the in the Elite Eight. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ask you to go out on a limb. Will Duke and Carolina meet in the Final Four, and then will Miami squeak in there and get into the Final Four? Any, any thoughts on any of that? Well, that's exactly what I was going to say, and that who would have thunk it that right now we have three teams from the ACC in the Elite Eight. You know, if you'd have started off from the beginning when we had 68 teams, I would have said no way. No. Uh -uh. No no way. Three teams from the ACC, because the ACC has had a down year, comparatively speaking, this year. They allowed a football conference to come up and be better than they were. That's the SEC. Uh, but but we got three teams, Miami, Duke, and Carolina all made the Elite Eight. And I believe that uh, we will have what I'm calling a Duke-UNC 4.0. This will be the fourth time that these guys would have met this year uh, if, they get, if they win their games, uh, uh, Duke against Arkansas, and UNC against St. Peter, then they both would go to the final four and they will play each other in that semifinal game, which would be historic. Mm -hmm. uh, Coach K playing his last, making the final four, uh, playing against his nemesis to see who goes to the championship game. I, I could write a couple of columns about that right now. But if you're asking me who's going to win it all, uh, I hate to say it, but it's not going to be one of those three ACC teams. I, I'm putting my money on the Jayhawkers from Kansas. So well, uh, we'll I'm I'm gonna tell everybody I'm gonna be honest about this. I have Kansas winning too, but I have I don't have UNC in the Final Four. Uh, I I don't know what possessed me, but I put down St. Peter's uh, in my bracket. <laughs> Uh, up, up until this point, but I had St. Peter's playing Baylor and not UNC. So, mm -hmm. so I'm going to be honest. I did not have UNC in the Elite Eight, uh, and I have Kansas winning it all. So, uh, uh, there it is. It's for the record. I do have well, Duke. But I, I wanted to say one last thing, and I know mm -hmm. we got to go. But there is a certain type of team that has emerged that people got to watch out for. And I'll give you their names first because before I take Arkansas, Houston, yeah, Miami, those guys play a certain type of basketball. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how tall you are or how many articles you're having written about you or how stellar your coach is. These guys play Rucker Park, YMCA street ball. And well, that's hard. That's hard to that's beat. That's hard to beat. When you got a bunch of guys who played 
parochial ball in high school, and the mamas told them, don't go down there and play with them boys. They play rough, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, th that's what's happening in, in college basketball today. That's well, why the place uh, St. Peter's is doing well. Arkansas is doing well. And Houston looks real good. My yeah. second thought, if, if, if Kansas doesn't win at all, it's going to be Houston. Yeah. Well, you know what, Val? Uh, I, I'm, I'm scared of that St. Pete UNC matchup. Uh, just to be honest with you. Uh, anyway, you know, we're out of time. Uh, tell me something good. So tell me something I need to know or anything I got to look forward to in the week coming up. Well, we just had a, uh, the, the sorority of Delta Sigma Theta uh, had his uh, presentation of uh, gerrymandering and redistricting and how it affects your vote. And they were kind enough to ask me to to be their guest speaker. And to your benefit, Ed, they had seen us on the deal and they thought that uh, we would make a, uh, a good choice to do that, uh, to be a representative of something that they are trying to do and put forward. And it was very successful. Uh, had uh, almost 100 people sign into Zoom and not to mention how far that goes, they're gonna record it. So they gave thanks uh, and recommendations to the deal and to Connections and to Val Atkinson and Ed Clark, Eric Jonah, for the contributions that we've made to making their redistricting Zoom meeting a success. Well, that's, that's a good deal. Well, Val, that means uh, I hear some music, so we gotta go. But folks, uh, go out and do some good for somebody today. That's what we always say. And then come back with us next Saturday for more The Deal with Ed Clark and Val Atkinson. See you next week. Bye.